welcome to episode 29 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Today is September 29th. And before we begin, we just wanted to thank all our new listeners from the last week or so. Some of you have started listening as these podcasts are assigned for various courses. So please keep listening and spread the word about the podcast. And remember to give us a rating on whatever streaming service you're listening to. In today's episode, which is, by the way, our half-year mark, we're going to start a two-episode mini-arc on a pressing topic in many people's minds due to COVID-19, vaccinations. So our thanks to our assistant producer, Tori Zerl, who helped put this mini-arc together after a lot of research on guests, topics, and ideas. Our guest for today is James Harris, who's a historian of modern Europe with a focus on Great Britain. He received his PhD from Ohio State University, where he's currently a lecturer in the history department. Jim works on public health campaigns in Britain around the turn of the 20th century, but also more broadly on infectious diseases and the history of science. He teaches courses on these topics as well, including the history of medicine, where he examines vaccinations and anti-vaccine movements, which we'll get to in a few moments. He also wrote a number of articles for the Origins website, which is Current Events and Historical Perspective, sponsored by Ohio State and Miami University. And he wrote an article called Pandemics Today and Yesterday that gives a super useful overview of pandemics in history that recently won the Stanton Foundation Applying History to Clarify the COVID-19 Challenge Prize. So hi, Jim. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for showing up. As usual in our episodes, we begin by describing the local effects of COVID-19 where we're at. So, Merle, let's start with you. What's happening in Annapolis? So, as of last week, we have now sent our kids to daycare, finally. It's an in-home daycare with uh, just one other family, plus the nanny teacher taking care of them. So, we have a little more time now. Um, so, that's been quite nice. And the other thing is summer's winding down here, so there's fewer tourists running around. But it should get interesting because... Now I'm seeing tenting outside, but it has covers on the sides of the tents and heating units inside, which would seem to belie the point of having an outdoor seated eating section, shall we say. And yeah, I'm not sure that considers that that's considered outdoors, but okay. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is we just bought what will probably be the hit new thing of the season, which is a fire pit. So we can have people over and have a nice fire in our backyard and keep vaguely warm. Well, I probably won't be able to come over anytime soon, but. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's necessarily for you, Lee. And uh, what about you, Lee? Are you still doing fake lockdown? No, actually, so we are in serious lockdown now and the situation is pretty bad. Maybe you'll, you'll be glad to hear, Merle, that we as in Israel passed you guys, the United States, and number of deaths per day per person. Not a good statistic, but things are, are pretty bad here. Today is actually being decided right now, but I think it's a pretty pretty obvious it'll pass that this full lockdown will continue for at least another month after we've been in lockdown for two weeks by this point. And there's also a vote going on about de facto outlawing demonstrations. And these demonstrations are those against the government that I've been mentioning on and off in, in recent episodes, and that will also likely pass. So you could say that the social and political effects of COVID in a sense, at least, seem more serious than its biological effects. 
Yeah, it's actually interesting, Lee. We should track your statements over the course of this podcast, and maybe one of our listeners will, how you've changed your tune and your government's changed your tune and how you guys have done a full 180 on pretty much everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, we have, I mean, for better or for worse, probably for worse. I mean, we we did kind of have it under control, or at least that's how it seemed for several months. And then, let's say like a month or a month and a half ago, things started to become worse, much worse, and it took a while till people realized. And, and that while means that too many people unnecessarily died and are still being infected. So what about you, Jim? Where are you and what's happening there? I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and Ohio has been kind of up and down with cases of COVID-19 uh, per day. We were, we were doing well until a couple days ago, and then around about the 24th of September, um, cases per day have been on the rise again. Fortunately, in the capital and uh, a, a large college town, people are, are, are generally taking this very seriously, so I'm seeing lots of people wearing masks, they should. And so forth. So, how are you teaching? I'm teaching fully remotely. Uh, I'm teaching three classes this term. I'm teaching a course on the history of vaccination that I'm very excited to talk to you guys about today. Uh, and we're teaching that as a hybrid uh, of synchronous and asynchronous learning. We've set up our lectures to be recorded in advance. The students watch on their own time, but their ultimate project for the course is going to be thinking about the ways in which Operation Warp Speed and the race for a COVID vaccine is unprecedented in history. And so we meet periodically on Zoom to talk about current events relative to the rest of the course material. And is that the norm at Ohio State? I mean, is everyone teaching remotely? Uh, I read a statistic that said something like 75% of our classes are remote. Yeah, that seems like quite a lot. And I guess that we can transition to the discussion at this point. So as we begin with the history of vaccination, the history of vaccination is tied to smallpox. Maybe a good way forward would be to at least give us a broad overview of what smallpox is and maybe why was it more problematic than other diseases. Sure. Uh, smallpox is a viral disease. It uh, exists in two broad strains, variola major and variola minor. Variola major being the more dangerous and deadly strain with about a 30% mortality rate. Variola minor has about a 1% mortality rate. Uh, and this is a disease that has been with humans for a very long time. We we have earliest cases that we trace back to Egyptian mummies about 1100 before the common era. Its particular prevalence amongst children by the early modern period uh, made it a particularly alarming threat in society and its characteristic symptoms being pockmarked skin were particularly shocking as they were visible and extraordinarily painful for the patient suffering from the disease. Why is it that smallpox has this kind of strong imaginary pull in human thought? I mean, it's a disease that I always think about as one of those big ones in human history. Is it the mortality rate? Is it the visibility? What is it that makes smallpox 
so much more evocative in the human imagination? Sure. I think it's, uh, the answer to that is twofold. One is the visibility of the symptoms. The fact that patients were scarred in very, very horrible ways, and often these scars would remain for life in the patients uh, if they had a severe case of the disease, made it visibly shocking. But also the fact that it is a disease that's been around for all of recorded human history and has, has been a deadly threat throughout human history that makes it so shocking. But it's also historically significant as the only disease we've completely eradicated globally. Yeah, and we've actually touched upon that eradication in, in several previous episodes, so, so that's a good connection. So how does the vaccine story or the vaccine to smallpox, how does that connect into this? I mean, why or how was this vaccine developed? So the very origins of the word vaccine, the etymology of the word are tied to smallpox. The term vaccine comes from the Latin vaca for cow. In, in the 1790s, there was an English physician named Edward Jenner who was a country physician who was responsible for performing what was then inoculation, uh, a process called variolation, which was taking a dose of smallpox and exposing children to that disease. They would uh, make a small incision in the hand or the arm, and some of this vaccine material, vodka, would be surgically introduced into the child, essentially. And Jenner understood this was a very painful and potentially risky procedure. But as a child, he remembered hearing stories about milkmaids being exposed to cowpox, which is a very similar disease. And they would develop immunity to smallpox from their exposure to cowpox. And so he, that is to say Edward Jenner, ran an experiment in the 1790s of trying to use this vaccine material as pus from cows uh, and cowpox instead of actual smallpox material to generate an immune response. And that transition from using smallpox virus material in inoculation to using cowpox is actually the origins of the concept vaccination. Vaccination specifically refers to using the cowpox vaccine material. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So you're saying that actually inoculation was taking place before the invention of the vaccine. So where do they get that idea about inoculation? So inoculation has a, has a much longer history to it. It dates uh, inoculation being obviously exposing someone to a pathogen to generate an immune response. We have records of potentially inoculation dating to about the 11th century in China. It was kind of weird. It involved pulling uh, smallpox material uh, into the noses of patients. The process of this sort of surgical approach, inoculation using material from smallpox patients and stitching it into patients' arms was traced to the Ottoman Empire. And it was the wife of the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. Her name was Lady Mary Montague, who observed this process in the Ottoman Empire. And she had her children inoculated using this process. She called it engrafting. Um, and then brought that practice back to Western Europe. And that's how it was introduced to Western Europe and then was used for the next 100 years before Jenner would convert it into vaccination. 
And you said that this was a pretty painful process, but was it safe? It's hard to measure the degree of safety because th- what doctors were doing was literally exposing children to smallpox material with the hope that they would contract a, a mild strain of the disease. Because if you contracted smallpox, you were Im- then immune for the rest of one's life. So why is it that smallpox vaccinations then had such a lasting use and influence compared to maybe other inoculations? So smallpox vaccination, this was the first time vaccination was done. It was done to contain smallpox. And this is a history that lasts much of the 19th century. And once Jenner made his discovery that cowpox could be used instead of smallpox in the procedure, that greatly increased the safety of the procedure. Because again, that was a much milder disease, but was genetically similar enough that it would confer the same immunity. And with that discovery in hand, that created a a longevity to this procedure until other vaccines are developed towards the end of the 19th century. So then maybe to keep going with the story briefly, how does this vaccine develop elsewhere other than Britain from there? We've traced it from the Ottoman Empire to Britain. Where else does it go from there and where uses it and where maybe doesn't use it and perhaps why? And just to jump in, how was that knowledge transferred? I mean, how did people communicate? I mean, you mentioned that the wife of the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire came back and had this like great idea about inoculation. But as science is, is being created, really, how is, is knowledge transferred between Britain and other countries? Sure. So it follows doctors in part across the Atlantic, for example, into the United States, inoculation as a procedure. We have fam- a famous case study. Uh, Boston, Massachusetts has a famous case study of doctors bringing inoculation across the Atlantic. And it was hotly debated whether the procedure was a violation of the uh, of the will of God. In a, There was a vigorous debate in the uh, Boston press in response to a 1721 epidemic before Jenner uh, between a, a Puritan minister whose name was Cotton Mather. Or, he was sorry, he was a Congregationalist minister and uh, the local physician. And it was curiously the minister who was arguing in favor of inoculation and the doctors were resistant to it. Other doctors, if we look at the aftermath of Jenner's discovery uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon Uh, recruited doctors to follow his army as they campaigned across Europe and vaccinating his army. And then it spread outward from the Mediterranean back into across the uh, Indian Ocean into even as far as Bombay. So it was a very personal process, right? So people moved this rather than publications or, or texts. That's correct. And if we want to think about just how personal the process was uh, the means of transporting vaccine material was also a very personal and kind of frightening story. In the early 19th century, late 18th century, uh, we obviously did not have contemporary refrigeration tools. And so you would literally have to vaccinate a person, put them on a ship, take a bunch of other people with them, vaccinate another person. And it was, it was called an arm to arm chain of vaccination as you would literally vaccinate. Uh, you would use 
human beings as the tool to keep the vaccine material safe and stable and creating these long chains of persons along the way. So was that always a voluntary process, right? I can imagine in many cases you didn't actually want that to happen. So was there pushback? And if so, were people forced to do this? I'm thinking in particular here, maybe perhaps of slaves. So slaves and foundling orphans were often used, particularly in the case of moving armed armed vaccination to the Spanish New World, for example, in South America. Orphan foundlings were put on ships and masts and used as these human refrigeration tools, essentially. And yes, that was often, and then they were often kind of left to their own devices when they arrived in the new world. And, and another question here is, so people who did contract smallpox as kids, right? Was there any documentation of this? Could they resist being inoculated again or being vaccinated again if, if they just argued that they had already had smallpox? Uh, so the, the easiest way to identify if a person was vaccinated for smallpox is doctors could go look for the scar that was left behind from the procedure. The way vaccination was done was uh, a small surgical tool called a lancet, which of course is now one of the premier medical journals is named for this tool. A small incision was made with a lancet. And like I said, the vaccine material was put in this incision and then it was stitched up. And then after a period of time it was removed. And you could go see the, the scar that that procedure left behind as a means of monitoring who was vaccinated, who was not. But bad scars or hardly visible scars in some cases meant it was hard to tell if a person was vaccinated and then they would be sometimes revaccinated even if they'd already been subject to the procedure once. So can I ask then, I guess one other, seems to me a natural point following on from what Lee asked earlier, what is the moment in which there is a paradigm shift from, as it were, personal choice or personal forcing of people, slaves and others to get vaccinated to a sense that everyone should be vaccinated. And we'll get to dissenters to that in a little bit, but when does that paradigm shift occur? So by the early 19th century, once the efficacy becomes, and certainly by the mid 19th century, when the efficacy of vaccination becomes clear, we see the origins of medical statistics in the mid 19th century. In my research, William Farr, who's again, I'm a British historian, uh, William Farr is one of the founders of medical statistics, and he's working in the 1830s, 1840s, starts quantifying cases of smallpox from year to year. As vaccination becomes used widely, the numbers of smallpox cases, which had been prevalent in the early modern period, start to decline precipitously. Okay, so that explains vaccines. And let's move on to the anti-vaxxers, anti-vaccination movement. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that and maybe start from the beginning. Sure. So I see resistance and challenges to vaccination, even though its efficacy was, was clear from Jenner onward, taking three broad historical forms. Uh, I mentioned that debate in Boston between Cotton Mather, the minister, and his contemporary, William Douglas, a local physician. And they were debating inoculation before Jenner when it was still using smallpox. 
on theological grounds that this was an, an affront to the will of God to vaccinate a child or to inoculate a child, if we're being precise. And if it was God's will that they should contract smallpox, and if so, they would whether they would live or die. That's the earliest form of vaccine resistance that predates vaccination. And then in the 19th century, we see a second form of vaccine resistance in political rhetoric. If we look at the English example or the American example, by the mid to late 19th century, first in England, later in the United States, seeing the utility of vaccination as the numbers of smallpox cases come down, as vaccination numbers rise, Parliament enacts laws that make vaccination compulsory under penalty of fine or even imprisonment. And for some, this was deemed a violation of their civil liberties and the state literally invading the most intimate aspects of a person's life, their very body itself. And so this was attacked on political grounds. So after Jenner started to vaccine, there was no real pushback, if I understand correctly. In the immediate aftermath of Jenner's discovery of that cowpox was an effective vaccine material, there were some people that were were concerned about this. Contemporaries mocked this as in magazines like the, the political satire magazine Punch. Uh, there are famous images of people turning into cows and such nonsense. But the support for Jenner's discovery was within a matter of a few years, overwhelming that it quashed the people that believed this was unscientifically sound and dangerous. And this was seen as kind of a victory for science at that time? Jenner was, Jenner received accolades from many of the major scientific establishments of his time. He was never recognized uh, by the Royal Society for his work on vaccines. His accolades were actually uh, for his work on the cuckoo bird. But outside of his home country in England, he was given considerable accolades. He was given honorary degrees from uh, some of the great United States universities. And in a letter uh, from Thomas Jefferson dated May 14th, 1806, Jefferson tells Jenner that he, quote, erased from the calendar of human afflictions one of the greatest threats. He says, yours is the comfortable reflection that mankind can never forget that you have lived. Future nations will know you, that's Jenner, by history, that the loathsome smallpox has been eradicated by your work. A slight paraphrase. So... To pick back up on what you were saying in terms of personal liberty and anti-vaccination ideas, are there more particular things that push that idea? Is it, you know, religion, we think of today, conspiracy theorists, uh, maybe people about safety, maybe people who are abolitionists, who are against maybe forced vaccination of slaves or these foundling orphans. So what are the levels in which people are pushing these ideas? What's the discourse that people are using aside from general ideas of religious liberty, perhaps? So in the United States context, which I alluded to, but didn't talk to you about much, your point about slaves is a particularly astute one. United States vaccine resistors in the late 19th century uh, took up uh, the same kind of rhetoric that was used in the Liberator, which was a 
abolitionist newsletter, and they actually compared forced vaccination to being as dangerous and as threatening as slavery itself. Okay, so in this context, how does the contemporary anti-vaccination movement compare to these like early anti-vaccination movements from the 19th century? Is there like a direct continuation or was there some kind of break in between? So it's a break, right? As I said, there are three broad sort of umbrellas that I guess we could place resistance onto. Religious dissent, political dissent, and then in the 21st century, it's much scarier. Uh, the dissent comes from conspiracy theories and myths about science. The famous example being Andrew Wakefield's paper in 1998. So you would see, for example, those characters about people turning into cows, those early characters. So you would not see that as a conspiracy theory? Was that like just satire or something? Yes. Punch, that exact particular example comes from Punch, which was a political satire magazine. But there was concern about the safety of using material drawn from a cow as opposed to a human, even though it was ultimately a milder disease. So where does the break then happen that you're positing? Where does the earlier era of why people are suggesting or being anti-vaccination Where does that end and where does this new era pick up in terms of what we all think of today as, you know, subreddits of crazy people? (laughs) Uh, So in 1907 in the UK, a fourth vaccination act is passed by parliament in which conscientious objection was made permissible and recurring punitive fines for parents who refused to have their children vaccinated was passed. Similarly, in the 1905 United States Supreme Court case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the Supreme Court upheld that while it was acceptable to punish a a person for failing to vaccinate their child and the compulsory vaccination laws were permissible under the law, they upheld that one could not be forced to vaccinate their child. And so these uh, laws definitely upheld broadly the use of vaccination, but allowed for enough objection that they kind of quieted this political rhetoric that challenged the legality and the compulsory nature of vaccination. There were enough loopholes that by the early 20th century, that rhetoric sort of dies down. And then there seems to be a lull through the heyday of vaccination that is the 20th century. In the first half of the 20th century, we we see the emergence of a huge number of new vaccines for a wide range of diseases. And then it's the late 20th century, we see this new resurgence of the, what you call them, subreddit conspiracy theorists. So how do these people communicate, right? How do anti-vaxxers communicate before the internet? Largely through pamphlets and newsletters and organized social movements, public organizations. There are a whole slew of them, uh, like the Anti-Vaccination League of London, which is formed in 1853, the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League, which is another English one in 1967, in the United States, the Anti-Vaccination Society of America is founded by an Englishman who 
transplants himself named William Tebb uh, in 1879. And they produce pamphlets and other things that are disseminated publicly to promote their rhetoric. I've seen everything, things as obscure as anti-compulsory vaccination hymns uh, being produced. So I'm kind of curious. We talked to Nancy Toms a few episodes ago about her idea of the gospel of germs, right? This idea that, you know, more and more people in their daily life took on the idea of germs and understood it uh, as something that was around them, right? So they practiced more sanitary measures or they, they tried new things. Does the anti-vaccination movement, can you line that up with changes to say germ theory developing, bacteriology, and as people learn more about vaccinations and are educated more, do you see, because the dates you gave us in the early 20th century would work out pretty well, that that's also part of the reason perhaps why some of these early anti-vaccination efforts tend to peter out in the general zeitgeist of human thought? It's an interesting question. I don't feel like we can say with absolute certainty that there's a direct correlation, but there's a great book by Michael Warboys called Spreading Germs in which he articulates it. It takes about 20 years from when Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur introduced germ theory to when the germ theory of disease is broadly accepted. And that, that is basically that turn of the 20th century moment when that process uh, comes to an end. So it does uh, at least temporarily coincide. Part of the reason that process takes long is that doctors uh, were slow to adopt laboratory bacteriology in their clinical practices. The uh, resistance to diphtheria treatments and diagnosis is a particularly notable example of this. And if we move closer to the present, so let's say late 20th century, can we try to categorize maybe anti-vaccination people and organizations? Are, are these is there a correlation between membership in these organizations, let's say, and education, a correlation or an inverse correlation? And are doctors maybe part of these organizations? Part of resistance to vaccination? Yeah. So for the most part, no. But the person who sparked the most famous late 20th century conspiracy theory, Andrew Wakefield, is a, was a doctor who would generate a data, published a paper in 1998 in The Lancet that was based entirely on fabricated data sets. Ultimately, this cost him his medical license and his right to practice medicine, but he, he generated a data set of fabricated data that suggested a causal link between getting the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and the MMR vaccine and a bowel brain disease that he suggested causes autism. This was based in, again, fabricated data. And so it was, it was, it was retracted ultimately by the Lancet uh, as a mistake to publish it. So sticking with the present, how has the anti-vaccination movement from say 1998 onward been an influence on COVID-19 and its vaccine development? That's a great question. We're seeing reports in the media today, that's September 29th, that some 40 to 50% of the United States population is not 
comfortable going out and getting a COVID vaccine when it becomes widely available probably sometime in early to mid 2021. And I wonder if that fear, even though the whatever vaccine is released next year, I feel confident if it goes through the, the appropriate channels through FDA approval will be a safe product. But people fear the safety of a vaccine that is developed this quickly. And it is faster than any vaccine has ever been developed. The fastest vaccine developed to date was a mumps vaccine in the 1960s. And that took four years to develop. And to develop a vaccine in 18 months is really, really fast. And people fear the safety from that. And I think that fear of safety stems from these concerns, even if they're false, about, say, MMR causing autism. Yeah, I mean, I do also wonder if you do a breakout on those polls, and I haven't seen the actual breakout numbers. If you ask a lot of those people who said they don't feel safe, what percentage are essentially liberals, progressives, who basically don't feel safe under this administration uh, doing what it's been doing in terms of vaccine development or claiming what it's been doing with anything involving COVID-19. And so I wonder if that number say, if there was a change in election would immediately then significantly kick upward. I think that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm sure someone's done that study. Uh, my thinking is that's why it's important that this go through the, the appropriate scientific channels. I myself volunteered to be in a phase three clinical trial for Pfizer's vaccine because I trust the scientists in what they're doing and I trust in science and was happy to be a, a scientific guinea pig myself as long as these things are done correctly. Just a, a quick question on that. Are they compensating you in any way? I ultimately wasn't selected as a mid 30 year old white male. Apparently they had plenty of people like me uh, rush to enroll in the trial, but it would have been a fascinating experience. I'm teaching a course this semester on the history of vaccination. And obviously one of the things we do in that course is talk about what phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials are. And to be a living primary source for that would have been a really interesting teaching experience. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. I mean, it reminds me of the scene in Contagion, which I'm sure you've you've seen, right? In which the, the doctor injects herself with the, the vaccination. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it's kind of similar. Except, Lee, if you remember what Vincent told us that he pointed out, which I never noticed in that movie, is that she injects herself with the vaccine, but everyone else in the movie takes the vaccine as a like an inhaling device. So there's a slight problem there with that movie. Yeah, there are a few other problems which we've touched upon, but yeah. Okay, so I think with that, we will wrap up this part of the episode. I wanna thank you so much, Jim, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you guys. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, so getting back to you, we have with us Tori, our assistant producer, and we'll have a short reflection session on the interview that we've just had. 
which I think did a good job of explaining both the background of the vaccination of vaccinations in general and the anti-vaccination movement. Actually, it's different origins. Yeah, I thought that was a really good overview of inoculations and vaccinations across the last couple of centuries, as well as a look at some of the early anti-vaccination movements and some of the ones today. So I was actually surprised that inoculation as a thing really started about a thousand years ago, right? It started in the Middle Ages. He mentioned that we had evidence for that or something similar to that in China in the 11th century, which was pretty surprising because when we think about the Middle Ages on our side, Merle, we don't really think about that side of things, right? We don't think about inoculation. And there's even a debate about whether contemporaries understood how disease moved from person to person. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so I thought that was really good to give us that kind of very big view of all these things. And it's also important to remember that even as vaccinations were created, uh, so now you're moving away from inoculations to vaccinations, that viruses weren't even defined yet. They're using that option um, without knowing that the virus existed at all. So it wasn't planned in that capacity. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. They don't really understand the process or, or what's happening at the microscopic level, but they are observing the world around them and coming up with ideas about how they might be able to solve a problem. I mean, like the milkmaids, right? That's the milkmaid example. Exactly. And it was a speculated about the milkmaids. It wasn't even fully, it, it's not like they had them go out into the fields to get it. It's that they just noticed this group of people had resistance to, to the smallpox. And it turns out it was because of working with cows. Yeah, it also goes back, actually, if you want to think about it, to some of the medieval public health episodes we even had when people posit a break before and after the Black Death in terms of public health. But in reality, if you think about this process is the same, which is you might not know that germs exist or certain things are causing things, but you can certainly act in ways that are for the betterment of public health regardless. Yeah, I guess it would be interesting to try and trace how the, the 18th century doctors thought about this. I mean, I'm assuming there was a beginning of a scientific way of thinking, of observation and empirical observation and trying to reach conclusions based on that. Yeah, I mean, that might make sense for a future episode, right? We're looking at pre-germ theory, but early modern ideas about medicine. Yeah. I mean, the... the question here, which we may have, we probably should have asked them was what about other vaccinations and when exactly are they developed, right? When's the next one developed? Right? There's like this very strong association between smallpox and vaccinations. And that's like the cover story and the poster boy of vaccination. But obviously that's not the only one. And between that the golden age of vaccination, the 20th century, as you mentioned, there's an entire century. And I know people have tried to, to vaccinate against plague in the late 19th century. Success with that has been partial at best. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the case. And that's definitely an area we could explore moving forward, right? How do these ideas change? I mean, if you think about it, he also posited 
a break in the anti-vaccination groups, right? That kind of, he noted, petered out around the turn of the 20th century and then picked back up in the late 20th century. So there's, you know, probably someone <laughs> that I assume who's worked on these middle periods and either what did continue or if nothing continued in terms of anti-vaccination efforts, what replaced it, right? And how people thought differently then. Also, I think in the 19th century, at least in the beginning, a lot didn't happen that could have, you know, I think it, it does break in general in medicine during that time. You mean after the discovery of the smallpox vaccination and until germ theory comes in? Yes. No, that's fair. I mean, the other point I thought that, you know, I pushed them on a bit, and I think we'll preview some of the discussions we'll have next week are on forced vaccinations, right? So his discussion about how you get a vaccine, quote unquote, across the Atlantic was pretty revealing, right? And then he revealed in particular who was forced to do these vaccinations or undergo them. And this is something, you know, I've seen quite a lot of work done on. And I think Mike Van touched on last week, where he mentioned, you know, people were forced to get uh, cholera vaccines or plague vaccines in Vietnam. And it was only essentially non-white people who were forced to get it. And even as they gave it to people, they knew fully that it didn't actually work. Yeah, and I think this really does touch upon a theme that we've touched upon in, in previous episodes as well, and, and we might want to really focus a future episode on, which is this very different narrative of science, right? So there's like the positive science is great narrative, which is usually white, usually male, usually looking back to this golden age of the late 19th, early 20th century, maybe a few decades afterwards as well. And then there's like a somewhat darker story about science, about all these other people, maybe non-men, non-white, who are usually often kind of left out of the, the broader story. Yeah, you know who we probably will have to discuss here late is Michel Foucault and obviously his idea of biopolitics, right? How you control people's bodies um, in various ways through the making of modern states. It's a very succinct yeah. version of Foucault, but uh, we definitely will have to bring that up and discuss with people because it's been an overriding, I think, thematic way in which people have explored this topic. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And so maybe you look at Foucault and the paradigm shift that he caused. So I just want to thank Tori again for setting up these vaccination episodes. And this is the first one, and we'll have another guest on next week. Thank you. Okay, so as we conclude this episode, Merle, I see you wanted to talk about the high holidays. So how have the, the high holidays been for you in Annapolis? Uh, they, were, they were different. We watched them on Zoom. I watched my shul that I went to growing up and they had services on Zoom. It was very actually well-produced, I thought. They had a camera on the canter and a camera on the rabbi. And then they had a zoom out camera. And when they did certain songs, they had like a chorus come in of pre-recorded people that they meshed together. Oh, so, so they was... actually like switched between cameras and that had effects. So like people were there running the zoom and yeah, yeah, no, it was very well done. I mean, the, the eeriest, weirdest part, right. They would do zoom outs every once in a while and every chair was removed from the congregation. And so there was definitely an echo. You could tell because there was no one in the room. So that was a little strange. 
but my kids did watch and they really enjoyed it actually because they like to comment on the different color kippahs that people were wearing and then we have a little basket of of them and so they would get the right color to match the person who was speaking whatever color they were wearing so they really liked that so interactive watching yeah yeah, yeah exactly services. so yeah. If, if one person had a uh, a red kippah they would go and get a red one and then they would switch to a white or a blue so they had a lot of fun yeah. i guess they're adapting to this new reality right yeah yeah what about you lee did you fast did you go to services what did you do so yes and no to, to answer both those questions uh, so i live in jerusalem and it's a pretty religious city so really think, tell me more about jerusalem being religious <laughs> yeah so i think i counted with my wife and there are like probably seven or so synagogues in say half a mile radius probably even more if we want to take half a mile radius from my house. So we walked a bit outside, for example, on Yom Kippur, which was what, like a couple of days ago. And it was interesting. I mean, some congregations clearly did keep social distancing and prayed outside, really. Others did not. And I guess we'll see what happens with both those congregations in a couple of weeks. And it's, a, it's kind of like an experiment in a sense. No, that, that's one way to put it. Did you have a traditional breakfast? I don't know if you do that in Israel. Yeah, so my, my family does. And we just got a pizza after the fast, which oh. is, is actually really nice. That's not very <laughs> exciting. I saw a funny photo from a colleague of ours who took a photo outside Zabar's, which is a famous deli in New York near my parents' house. It was a picture of Zabar's during COVID and it was just a massive line out the door, right? Everyone's six <laughs> feet apart and they don't let in so many people at a time. And if you ever go in that store, you literally can't walk around because it's just packed, especially, you know, the day before Yom Kippur. So there's obviously just this absurd line because they have the best locks and white fish and bagels and all that stuff. So that must've been a nice long line. So thanks to that colleague for posting that very funny photo, which I was very amused by. Yeah. Yeah, you know, here, here we had no lines. I mean, still, we're under lockdown. As I walked around, I mean, I could only imagine that this, for people who do practice, this would probably be a, definitely a holiday they will remember very well. It's, it's an entire day of prayer, really. So praying outside is like a big thing. Yeah, I took a nap too. I like the nap. You're also in a meeting. Yes, I know. And you had already eaten at the meeting, so that seemed particularly unfair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways. Before we wrap up this episode, we'd like to thank again all the people who contributed to this episode. So, Tori Zerl, our assistant producer, Cameron Tritavian, our sound editor, and Veridra Kanati, our webmaster. As usual, if you've been enjoying our podcast, please do feel free to continue sharing it. As Merle said earlier on, we've seen an uptick and we would definitely want to continue that. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and let us know what you had for your breakfast if you kept it. <laughs>